Merlon is a Horizon 2020 project that focuses on local energy management and optimization in presence of high shares of volatile distributed renewable energy sources. That includes generation, flexibility, res integration, as well as introduction of novel business models that will allow local energy communities to introduce themselves in the local flexibility markets. At the same time, Merlon assists the local DSOs by providing them the tools for the provision of added value services to the overlay distribution grid. Adonis Papanicolaou, my guest for this episode, is the project coordinator. He's also the head of R&D at Hypertech Energy Labs, working on solutions related to smart grids, energy efficiency, demand-side management, building smartification, including the interactions between buildings and utility networks. Welcome to the EU Project Zone, a podcast series from Enlit and Friends focusing on the energy transition and the EU Commission-funded projects that will help us achieve it. My name is Areti Daravimu and I am the host of the EU Project Zone. Hello, Antonis, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Areti. Uh, so, without Further ado, I will go to my first question for you. Would you please describe in a few words what the Merlon project is? Mm -hmm. So um, Merlon is a research and innovation project co-funded by the European Union, uh, dealing basically with energy management at a distribution grid level. So it was funded under a topic for weekly interconnected systems, so energy islands, what the Commission calls energy islands. And the main aim of the project is to offer uh, end-to-end solutions for energy management, which span from digital tools and infrastructures to business models uh, for the management of electricity, both from the supply side and the demand side. And the ultimate aim is to guarantee security of supply in a future decarbonized system when we will have uh, domination of renewables on the supply side with all the problems that these generate for system stability, balance, and so on. Okay, before we discuss the problems, uh, I would like to go to the needs. Which needs of the EU energy grid is Merlon covering and how? Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, we, we obviously work in the context of European policy with uh, target for decarbonization, of course, as, as the primary one uh, for climate change uh, mitigation. So there we are also dealing, as I said before, with weak grid infrastructure. Uh, so the, the, the context where we work is basically distribution systems which are weakly interconnected with overlay networks with the rest of the energy system of the country. And in the cases of the pilot sites of the Merlin project, uh, these areas also have a very high renewable potential. So there's a very strong urge to install more renewables there, decarbonize the system overall, but there's a very weak interconnection with the rest of the system, which means that this renewable generation cannot be absorbed. And this, of course, volatile generation. So there's a very strong need for energy management at, at the local level. And stemming from this need, then Merlin wants to create, well, is creating an integrated and modular energy management framework in order to, to manage all these energy flows at the level of distribution. And who is involved in the project? Um, we are 13 partners from six countries, five member states plus uh, the UK. 
Um, and we have two pilot sites, one in Spain, one in Austria, where all the solutions are going to be demonstrated and validated. Now, the consortium uh, obviously involves many different types of stakeholders. So we have, for example, SME private entities, SMEs, large companies offering, for example, digital solutions, energy management system vendors, system integrators, and so on. We have a few uh, partners from the academia and research, basically to bring the research perspective there. Um, we have distribution system operators who effectively bring the domain expertise and can uh, you know, explain and basically provide the real world needs for managing all these energy flows. So we need, of course, to customize our solution, to develop our solutions based on what the world actually needs, what's needed out there. And we also have energy communities in the consortium, which we see as one of the representatives of the, of the market segment that we want to address later on when we try to exploit our solutions. And you mentioned earlier problems that Merlon will, I assume, face also mm -hmm. and solve. And I also assume that the various people, the various expertise, the various, let's say, entities that participate at Merlon also help solve those problems, each at his or her own expertise, let's say. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Give us an example of a problem, perhaps, and how you solved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So one of the main challenges in energy management at this level, for example, is coordinating different supply and demand assets or sites. And of course, also introducing storage in the middle, which is some kind of buffer for those energy flows. So within the consortium, um, we have partners commercial partners who deliver, for example, digital solutions for energy management in buildings, because we also want to involve the citizens and their assets in this. We have partners who deliver, for example, energy management components and softwares for large battery systems, grid-connected battery systems. Um, we have then uh, partners beyond the DSOs, for example, we involve academia that does all the network modeling and optimization, someone with, with new tools and algorithms in order to make sure that you know, this coordination takes place in an optimal manner. And through the collaboration of all these partners, we aim to deliver ultimately a complete system that can manage energy flows within such a context in an optimal way that is, and of course, also uh, usable in the future and exploitable by DSOs and other market players. Who I assume are the target audience of the project. So apart from the utilities, DSOs, TSOs, etc., what other entities or, I don't know, the end consumer perhaps also mm -hmm. are audience? Um, well, the end consumers are, are a critical part of the audience in the sense that Obviously, we would like to have them more engaged in the, in the energy transition, and this is also one of the main challenges we are facing, uh, not only as a project, but also beyond. Uh, but I would say that the primary target audience of the project beyond system operators would be um, private entities that want somehow to participate in this, for example, third-party aggregators, or aggregators in general, they don't need to be independent. So uh, entities that can manage flexibility and offer added value services to the system through markets or directly to system operators and so on. Um, energy communities are a very interesting uh, upcoming audience uh, in the sense that we see that they're gaining traction, they are gaining control of more and more assets, for example, including grids, right? Our pilot site in Spain is handled by an energy community that has the role of the producer and DSO. This is also a very interesting case, and energy communities are, by default, a very interesting target segment for our solutions. 
Um, so beyond that, of course, we were also looking at uh, policymakers because we also want to feed them with interesting conclusions about how to adapt uh, you know, policy regulation and so on in order to facilitate deployment of such novel solutions for energy management. Now, if we see the European continent in general and also the European Union in particular, I think it's easy to think or one of the first things that comes to mind is that there isn't a homogeneous, let's say, landscape when we talk about the energy sector. So there are different kinds of grids. Some of them are more progressed than others. Regulations are different, etc. So how can we secure reliability of the local energy systems in a pan-European level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a very interesting question. Um, because it relates a lot to the uh, to the context overall of the Merlin project. As I said before, it's about local energy systems weakly interconnected with the rest of the system of the overlay network, for example. And there are also two, if you like, main strategies. So one is trying to, um, at the European level, right? So on the one hand, there is an attempt basically to couple the whole system at the European level through large connectors, facilitating energy flows and so on. For, uh, to guarantee stability overall. And then, of course, we also see uh, a microgrid approach, on the other hand, a bottom-up, if you like, microgrid approach, where you try to contain problems as locally as possible and try to resolve them so that they don't percolate to the rest of the system. Um, so I would say that Merlin is more suitable to the second kind of uh, approach. Of course, both these high-level approaches are necessary, right? And they solve different problems, but Merlin looks more at the local perspective. So the idea there is that we do not want to rely, for example, on the capabilities of the large system to offer stability and balance to the local system, but rather we want uh, to try to resolve locally as many challenges as possible, stemming mostly from renewables, from local renewable generation. So in our pilot sites, we have large PV installations mostly, that are basically larger than the local demand. So there, the issue more is related to reverse power flows to the rest of the network. But the entire, if you like, premise of the Merlin project is try to localize the problem, contain it, and solve it at the level of a distribution where these renewable assets are also connected. So interestingly, one of our use cases is the most challenging one, but we want to look at this as islanding. So really try to work locally, uh, if you like, uh, unconnected from the rest of the grid and try to locally resolve any problem that may, be, uh, may arise, right, due to the volatile generation before it becomes a problem for the rest of the system. And of course, it's not just, I mean, this is not the only concern, but by also consuming locally the energy that's produced there, you also have, for example, cost-saving opportunities and so on, right? So... Can we say that you would opt for a decentralized system when it comes to local markets, etc.? Um, yeah, we're not looking so much at the market perspective, uh, but basically the idea is to create solutions for part of the network that face problems with their infrastructure in terms of inter- uh, capacity, if you like, with the rest of the system. So really isolated or almost isolated part of the networks where it's basically too expensive to have a significant upgrade of the grid infrastructure and you want to look for point solutions there. Yeah, it makes sense. And I would assume that digitalization uh, is also a tool that will facilitate the energy system 
in a holistic way. Like, for example, when we talk reliability, security, resilience, everything. So which technologies would you say best enable local energy communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, based on what I've said so far, um, you can appreciate that a main problem is coordination of all these assets between them, right? So on the one hand, you have a renewable generation producing in a very volatile manner. And on the other hand, you have demand which has its own time patterns, right? And basically coordinating the two and making sure that the grid is balanced is the main challenge that we are facing. Um, now, in terms of technologies, first of all, the basic base technology you need must give you an understanding of the energy flows and their timing and how, for example, these are consumed or and or produced. So this is the fundamental premise of all these projects that we need a smart metering infrastructure with time granularity as as fine as possible. But this is just the prerequisite for a very rudimentary energy management. Um, If we want to really to do active energy management and try to actively coordinate all these energy flows, we need many more tools, much more technology, uh, bidirectional information exchange between different systems, different end uses, even involving citizens in the loop. We need, of course, well, observability and controllability is a more technical term of all this. So there are many, many different assets that need to be observable and controllable at a very fine time granularity. Now, uh, well, there are, uh, there's a class of technologies, machine to machine tools, basically technologies that are necessary in order to deliver on this requirement. And then if we go more into the different, if you like, application domains of this thing. So we have, for example, on the one side, we have technology related to the grid per se. So you need to monitor the system. You need to make sure that you can control, for example, substations and so on. We are not looking so much into the grid perspective in the Merlin project. What we're looking more at is the demand side, which for our perspective involves mostly buildings electromobility and storage, large storage systems. So there, for the two classes that directly involve citizens, so buildings and electromobility, we are looking at, on the one hand, IoT technologies in order to facilitate all the data collection, uh, plus all the control, the actuation necessary for the different assets. And for storage, basically, the Merlin project has developed an energy management system that based on the different use cases that you need to support can automatically control a grid-scale battery in order to facilitate the stability of the network. And now, on the building side, per se, plus EVs, which have the same characteristics in the sense that their operation directly affects the citizens, if you like, preferences or well-being or livelihood and so on. There, uh, we are looking into basically how to smarten, if you like, all these assets starting from legacy equipment, appliances, AV chargers, and so on, and try to make them more controllable and more intelligent, which is quite a challenge. And of course, the one thing is actually being able to interconnect them with uh, through digital technologies, and the other is trying to understand and influence their operational patterns, because their operational patterns depend almost exclusively on what people want to do with this. I mean, wet appliances, fridges, uh, washing machines, and so on. And even though these could be nice candidates for flexibility, I know people do use them for a different primary uh, purpose. The same applies roughly for, for example, heating cooling systems, which are going to be increasingly electrified in the future. So again, they could contribute significantly to flexibility. 
So I think a main conclusion is that even though, you know, I didn't talk about specific technologies, the idea is that we need a very high level of coordination among many, many different assets at different scales, different ownerships. So creating the system that can collect, manage, and actuate based on this information is quite challenging. You did mention flexibility already, and you gave me a really nice assist ball, as I say, in uh, in basketball, if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) the terminology. To ask you my next question, which is a little bit generic, I understand it, but feel free to, if you want to, to narrow it down. I want to ask you, how do we achieve flexibility and how does interoperability help? Mm-hmm. So flexibility can obviously come from several different sources. If you like, on the supply side, it's mostly containment. I mean, if we assume that we are already in a situation where supply is dominated by renewables, and we're not looking so much into this in the, in the Maryland project. So when we talk about flexibility, we mostly talk about the demand side plus storage. Um, now, again, I would say storage or at least grid scale batteries is an obvious solution. But of course, it's costly. I mean, it has its own disadvantages. So we need to be able to find flexibility in the pure demand side, if you like. And there, uh, what we are explicitly looking at is, as I mentioned before, more, if you like, citizen-oriented demand uses like buildings, electromobility, and so on, which also, coincidentally, right now, buildings are, I think, constitute more than 40% of energy demand. And as you know, as all these assets are electrified, this will become 40% of electricity demand around Europe, which is a very significant demand uh, demand sink and needs to become more flexible. Um, and I, I would dare to say that, you know, they are also the most challenging segment buildings in terms of obtaining flexibility from them because they are directly controlled by citizens, of course. I mean, buildings serve the needs of citizens or enterprises, which are, of course, also, you know, citizens behind all the decision making. So what we do in Maryland is we try to involve mostly residential buildings, so, you know, private citizens, and try to find ways to expose flexibility from their assets, from their residential appliances. Um, And this is a very big challenge, both on the technical front, so interconnecting this thing, but also trying to convince, if you like, citizens to adapt their behavior or trying to convince them that some things need to be automated in order to uh, deliver flexibility without people having the hassle of you know, actively tracking what's going on in the energy system through, for example, price signals and so on, and adapting their, their behavior. So you know, there's also a trade-off there from, uh, from the citizen perspective, whether they want to be continuously you know, engaged and trying to understand when they should consume and when they should use their appliances, or whether automation is a better solution for that. Now, obviously, uh, interoperability that you also mentioned is a fundamental requirement. So, I mean, if flexibility is the goal in order to decarbonize the system based on renewables, uh, interoperability is one of the main requirements. What we've seen up to now is that at least interoperability of technical systems is most probably going to be achieved through de facto standards, if you like. So, for example, there is the Open ADR standard coming from the US, which is now also quite popular in Europe. But we also see several standards upcoming in Europe developed, uh, if you like, by various alliances of 
vendors of, of solutions or appliances and so on, but none of them up to now has become actually a de facto standard. And I think the one that actually achieves to capture uh, a significant part of the market is the one that's going to become eventually the standard. And of course, everybody else will have to adapt, especially given the, the policy push from the commission, basically, that wants to enable, for example, citizens to switch providers and so on in an easy manner. So I think if you like the policy framework is okay in that sense. So it gives the right incentives and then the technical solutions will need to adapt. A similar thing also applies to, I would call it, process interoperability, a nice example of which is the use of framework. So managing flexibility, finding flexibility and managing, introducing into markets also requires, you know, new processes, new interaction between the different stakeholders, uh, new coordination schemes and so on. And again, there's no standard for that, right? We have market codes, market regulations and so on, but these just govern the interface of markets and what information they want, for example, as input and what they give as output. But Yusuf is a nice, if you like, a grassroots framework. You know, it grew from the Netherlands from a few stakeholders, basically. But it provides a framework based on which all this coordination of flexibility delivery can be achieved. It's not a standard yet, uh, but it's becoming very popular. So I have the impression that this is how interoperability will be achieved. So from de facto standards growing bottom up, basically, from different solutions. Yes, standardization is always a huge, let's say, topic, very important and very well attended, both at the NLIT Europe and in every energy event we participate or we see. My last question to you, although you already touched upon it, is on regulations and what we're missing in Europe, so in the pan-European uh, level and local level. But I think you already mentioned standardization and some robust regulation when it comes to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but... In my opinion, this is most probably not the most pressing issue in terms of regulation. So I'm saying that from the Maryland perspective, where we try to deal with citizens and involving citizens in the energy transition and flexibility delivery is, I think, one of the main challenges also faced currently by regulation stakeholders. So uh, policymakers, national regulation authorities, and so on. And the main, if you like, dilemma at the moment, also given the context these days of, you know, energy price spikes and so on, is, you know, how do we protect consumers against all these risks of energy cost versus how do we provide, how do we guarantee some effectiveness of price signals in order to steer demand side to become more flexible and more adaptable to generation, basically, right? Because we are in the middle of paradigm shift. So, there's a strong uh, push from the Commission through all these recent directives to have more cost reflectivity, you know, n- not absolutely, but at least have more. So, you know, the Commission is pushing for, you know, real-time price, uh, real-time tariffs and so on. On the other hand, we see most member states basically trying to protect their consumers against uh, all these, you know, perceived risks for the energy cost, especially for households. So I think this is one of the main, if you like, policy and regulatory challenges that's going to be around for the next few years. And again, I'm focusing mostly on this because from our target on the Maryland project, from our target on citizens, we see that, you know, currently people are not very eager to be involved in such activities. So most people would probably would like to ignore all these 
entire story uh, and you know just be left alone to continue with our life. I mean, very few people care about energy. A lot of people care about the environment, right, and climate change. Uh, but very few people currently care about energy and how this can be used in order to mitigate climate change. So, I'm sure they will change their minds now that they will start getting the first uh, bills of the energy, you know, it, <laughs> the energy uh, bills, yeah. It could be, it could be. But for example, I mean, I can give you a local example. The, the, the Greek government is already subsidizing energy bills. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the... I think that the national regulatory authorities are trying to hide the problem as much as possible and trying to protect, I mean, hide in a good way, not in a bad way, right? They're trying yeah. to protect their citizens, which is, of course, a good cause, uh, but it's completely against an increased awareness of the people, right? Uh, what is the energy transition, how it affects their life, how it affects climate change, urbanization, and so on. And at the end of the day, at least my assumption is that we want to involve people in this process. And involvement starts from awareness and understanding and then evolves into, for example, a more active participation. So there is, exactly. a, you know, there yes, is a very, very strong dilemma there. Exactly. I don't see it as much as a dilemma because I do believe that we need to be honest with the people. They're not babies. They, they deserve to know the truth. Anyway, uh, our time is up. Adonis, it was a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Arati, for having the Merlin Project and this podcast series. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the EU Project Zone podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and the Enlit Europe website. Just hit subscribe, and you can access our other episodes too. I am Arati Daradimu, host of this podcast series, and I thank you for joining us. <laughs>